you have a Bible, take it and turn to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 5. And as you turn to Luke chapter 5, I want to take a minute to kind of look down the road a little bit, see where we're headed in our study of the book of Luke, and then also take a moment to look in the rearview mirror, see where we've been, and then we'll kind of focus on the road that we're on and see what God has for us today from Luke 27, Luke 5.27 to 32. So where we're going, um, I had ambitions of covering the rest of chapter 5, um, <laughs> but uh, verses 33 through 39 speak to the subject of fasting. Uh, fasting isn't something that we talk about too much, nor is there any a whole lot of direct teaching on fasting, and so I think it's going to be good for us to pause and think about fasting. Should we fast as Christians? What does that look like in the life of New Covenant believers uh, what does Jesus have to say about that? This is a key passage. So next Sunday we'll be talking about fasting. So eat lots for breakfast before you come. Um, and uh, just kidding, I don't know. That was an off-the-cuff joke that probably wasn't funny. Um, anyways, and then in chapter 6, Jesus is going to tackle the issue of the Sabbath in verses 1 through 11 there. Uh, that's a topic he often covers. What does the Sabbath mean? Verses 12 through 16 is the call of the 12 apostles. And then the remainder of chapter 6 is what's often called the Sermon on the Plain. It's a long teaching section, not as long as the Sermon on the Mount, but very similar. Um, and so that's where we're headed. That's kind of where we're going. Now let's think about where we've we've been. Uh, for the past three weeks, you can remember, we've had these uh, these stories of Jesus' encounters with with different people, with individuals. We saw him... Astounding Peter, you remember this, with this massive catch of fish, so much so that the boat was fishing, was, was sinking and, and Peter is driven to his knees and says, I'm a sinful man. And Jesus calls him to follow him. Uh, we watched a couple weeks ago with the leper, as this leper comes to Jesus and falls on his knees. And what does Jesus do? He reaches out and he touches him and he says, I am able and I am willing to make you clean. And then last week, this beautiful picture of the paralytic being brought by his friends. And Jesus not only raises him up, but he does it to prove that what he said before is true, that the Son of Man has come on earth with authority to forgive sins, and that God has authority to forgive our sins. And now this week, we meet another man, Levi, or as he calls himself, as you might better know him, is Matthew. Levi and Matthew is the same person, and here um, in Luke's Gospel, he's referred to as Levi, so we'll do our best to stick to that. If I call him Matthew every once in a while, though, we're talking about the same guy. Um, but let's read here in Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. After this, he, Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat, with, re eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What a great truth that we get to think on this morning. Uh, growing up, I didn't I didn't watch much Sesame Street, um, but my wife is a Sesame Street expert, 
uh, and she knows lots of the the different classic episodes, and every once in a while we bring them up on YouTube for the girls to see because they need to see certain things from Sesame Street. And every once in a while she'll sing one of these songs from Sesame Street, which I won't try to sing this morning. Maybe she'll do it for you afterwards. But the words are, I don't know if this is currently on Sesame Street for those of you that still watch it, um, but uh, it goes, one of these things is not like the other one. One of these things just isn't the same. Trevor's nodding. Are you still watching or is this past memories? Okay. <laughs> one of these things is not like the other one. Now it's time to play our game. And the game is that there's something that's not like the other things. There's one thing that's that's out of place. And the game is to try to figure out what what doesn't belong. And as I look at these these different people in the chapter, you look at a leper and you look at a paralytic and then you look at Levi the tax collector. If I were to say, which one of these doesn't belong? The person that comes to my mind is is Levi, this this tax collector. He he doesn't seem to fit. Well, why doesn't he fit? Why is he different from the others? Well, right off the bat, he has a name. <laughs> the other ones are not referred to by any name. They're referred to as the leper, the paralytic. This is Levi, the tax collector. He has a name. But but thinking about the fact that they are recognized as the leper and the paralytic also tells us what is different. That that they have a physical need. And Levi does not. He's not sick. He's not lame. He is an, an able-bodied, physically healthy man. Not only that, but he is a, a well-to-do, wealthy man. Maybe upper middle class, you might say. We might assume that the leper and the paralytic, they couldn't work, and so they probably didn't have money funds. And, and Matthew has a surplus of funds. He has no problem with making ends meet at the end of the month. He's a tax collector. What that means is his boss was probably a, a Roman citizen who had bought the rights to a certain area, and he was allowed to tax, collect taxes from that city or that province or whatever it might be. And so that was his. He would bid for that and say, this is how, many, how much I'll get Rome in taxes. And then he hires different people, locals, to collect those taxes and give them to him, which he then gives to Rome. And so Levi is probably one of these local guys. He's a Jew who is taking taxes from his fellow Jewish people to give to the Roman government. And the way that he made his money in some way was to, you know, to collect a little bit more, to put a little surcharge on top or to charge a little bit of interest when people didn't pay on time. And he would deliver what he was required to to his boss and then he would keep the rest and he made himself fairly wealthy. So as we think about how different Levi is from these, from the leper, from the paralytic, we can say Levi is, is healthy and wealthy. He's healthy and wealthy, which makes him very different from these other two characters. And yet, and yet as much as Levi is, is different, he is very much the same. First off, he, he was an outcast. We saw that the leper and the paralytic would have been outcast, but, but so is Levi. He is an outcast by, Think about this. He's he's getting rich off the extortion and exploitation of fellow Jews. He's taking money for Rome from his brothers and sisters. And this made him totally detestable in their sight. It's not too strong to say they hated him. They hated Levi. He's an outcast. They wanted nothing to do with him. And just as the leper would have been avoided as a stench in society, so tax collectors were avoided by their neighbors. 
when I was at school at Moody Bible Institute, Joe Stoll was the president. He said one of the things that I learned in my, as part of my education is that when you talk about sinners and tax collectors, you have to say it in the right way. And it's sinners and tax collectors. I mean, they're just vicious, terrible people. And that's what everyone thought of them. They were outcasts. Not only is an, he is an outcast, but he is also in need. He is in need. He, he doesn't have a physical need. He doesn't have a financial need. But like these other men, what is he? He is morally bankrupt. He didn't need his friends to carry him like the paralytic did because he was able to walk. But just like the paralytic, he is dead in his trespasses and sins. He is a sinner in need of forgiveness. So he's different, but he's also very much the same. He's an outcast and he's a sinner in need. I point that out in part because when I stepped into the study of this these verses this week, I went thinking that this is going to be different. That this is a different flow in the chapter. It's it's something new. It's this call of Matthew and and Matthew's a respectable individual. He's, you know, someone that Jesus is calling to be a part of him. But instead it would seem that this is just one more in a series of needy outcasts that Jesus is showing mercy to. And you know, as we talk about the leper and the paralytic, we shouldn't leave out the smelly fisherman Peter. Because Peter was an outcast too. Nobody liked fishermen either. And right at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus calls this fisherman. Now, if you played another game, not one of, not one of these things is not like the other one, but maybe would you rather, that's a game we play at our house every once in a while, would you rather be this or that? Would you rather do this or that? And if you played with a first century Jew and you said, would you rather be a fisherman, a leper, a paralytic, or a tax collector? That would be a really hard decision. I don't know if they would know what to say. And I'm not even sure, you know, most of us say, well, they'd pick tax collector. I don't know. They might say, well, I'd rather be a paralytic because at least I didn't choose that. Tax collectors, I mean, they willfully chose to, to go against us. These people are despised. They are outcasts. They are seen as unclean. They are sinners that no respectable person would want to be around. Which is why it's amazing, in verse 27, it says that Jesus went out and saw a tax collector. Jesus approaches Levi. Jesus goes to Levi at his workplace. Uh, Compare that with the other ones. Remember the leper? The leper came to Jesus. The leper comes to Jesus into the the town or on the outskirts of the town and and meets him there. The, The paralytic is carried by his friends. But here, Jesus goes to Levi. Jesus seeks him out. He initiates contact. Now, what I don't want to say in that is that there's a difference. That the leper and the, and the paralytic, that they did something to come to Jesus. That they, there's some sort of works-based righteousness here. If, if, if we come to Jesus, it's because he's alive and in our hearts. He's, he's wake, woken us up to our need. We may come because he's made us aware of our need and so we, we come to him and we seek him out. Or, or it may be that our friends tell us of our need and take us to Jesus, but, but he is the one that is awakening that need. There's different ways to come to him. It may be, though, like Levi, that Jesus met you on your lunch break at work. That you picked up a gospel tract or you read a portion of scripture or you talked with a friend. And Jesus, in that moment, came to you, met you, sought you out, and said, follow me. That's what he says here. Went out 
He saw a tax collector named Levi. He looked at him. You can almost see him locking eyes with Levi. He sees him sitting at the tax booth. And he says to Levi, follow me. Very simple command. Follow me, Levi. And at that command, we're taken back to Peter, aren't we? Do you remember that? That's what he says to Peter in the boat. He's there with the fish jumping around on his knees. I'm a sinful man. And Jesus says, follow me, Peter, and I'll make you a fisher of men. And here with Levi, it's the same call. This is the moment of decision. Levi is sitting at his tax booth. Now, what's he going to do? Will he follow Jesus? I think we often imagine when we read this that this is the first time that Levi ever talked to Jesus. Is that how you think? I mean, that's how I always think about it, is that this is the first contact. But, you know, we don't really know if that's that's true or not. There could have been a lot of preparatory work that God was doing. I think that Levi surely had heard about Jesus. I mean, who hadn't heard about Jesus? Maybe he was even there on the outskirts when some of the, the healings or things or the teachings happened. I thought even this week, you know, it could be it could be that Levi was one of those tax collectors that was baptized by John and then came and said, what do I need to do to show true fruits, fruits of repentance? Remember that? Some tax collectors came to John and said, what do we need to do? I'm not really sure. But maybe, I, I think, as I think about it, that, that maybe this moment when Jesus comes to Levi as he's sitting in the tax booth, that, that maybe at that moment something's going on in Levi's heart that he's just feeling conviction of sin at that moment. He's convicted of his mistreatment of people. He's disgusted with the man that he's become. But he looks at himself and he just says, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to change. I, I'm, I've heard about Jesus and I'm, I'm just all confused as to what I'm supposed to do. I think a lot of people are that way. They're trapped in sin. Maybe you're that way today. You're just, you're convicted of sin and, and, you, on the outside, it looks like you have everything together, but on the inside, you just you don't know who you are. And you, how did I get this way? How can I change? Whatever had gone on in, in Levi's past, though, this was the decisive moment. This was when he has the choice: is he going to follow Jesus or not? And the text gives us some some marks of discipleship, some ways that we know what Levi does. The first thing that he does is he rose up. It says there. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Now, the fact that it says he rose, I don't, it, there must have been something unique about the way that he stood up. I, I don't know. Otherwise, why does it why does it say that he he rose up? And something about maybe the way that he the way that he stood up. I maybe even imagine Matthew telling this story later on that you know he says, "I heard Jesus say these words, follow me," and it, and it was it was as if, as if something just happened in my heart. It caused me to. To jump up, I mean, I just sprang to my feet with, with new life when he said, follow me. I rose up, almost like he was rising from the dead. That's what I think this, this reminds me of, of just the, the miracle of regeneration. That, that before he could not respond to Jesus, and all of a sudden Jesus says, follow me. And at that moment, the Spirit comes and, and regenerates his heart, that, that he is now able to follow and to, to, to do what Jesus calls him to do, that this is where that, that unseen work of being born again happens, that before he didn't want anything to do with Christ, and then in this moment he is he is made alive, he is born again, he is given spiritual life, he's given the gift of repentance by God, and he's able now to follow. 
So he rose up. And next, what does he do? He he leaves everything. He leaves everything and leaving everything. Levi couldn't follow Jesus and remain in the tax booth. He had to leave. He couldn't follow Jesus and remain in that lifestyle that, that he lived. He had to get up. He had to move away from his his riches, from his position, from whatever else was, was holding on to his heart. He had to leave. You know, that's what part of what following Jesus is. It's it's a putting off. It's it's a forsaking of sin. Jesus is going to say later that he has come why? To call sinners to repentance. That you have to turn. There is something that has to be forsaken. You have to leave sin. But notice that it's not just leaving. That that's not all Jesus is calling us to do. It's that Jesus doesn't come and say, leave everything that you love. Forsake everything. But what does he also say? He says to follow him. So he rose up. He left everything, and he followed Jesus. He followed Jesus, it says there in verse 28. He walked after Jesus. He started to align his life with Christ. He desired to do the things that pleased Christ. He became a disciple of Christ. He was walking in the ways of Jesus. That's what disciples are. Disciples of of Jesus are those who, who put off the deeds of the flesh and by the power of the Spirit put on the fruits of the Spirit. It, it's it's a put off, put on. This is how Ephesians 4 says it. Ephesians 4, listen to these words. Now this I say, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. So don't be like who you were in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous, have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. This is who they are. But that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. This is what you were taught. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. That's that rising up and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is what a disciple does, a follower of Jesus forsakes sin and follows Christ. It's both and. So often we make our walk with Christ about, here's all the things that God tells me not to do. I'm not allowed to do this. And if all we do is focus on the things that we're not supposed to do, then we won't truly be following Christ. We'll just be thinking about our sin. We think about all the things we're not supposed to do. That's a joyless place to live. But the other thing we're supposed to do is to follow Christ. But if we just follow Christ and we seek to love others, but there's all this sin in our life, then we're not true disciples. A true disciple forsakes sin by the power of the Spirit and follows Christ. Bears fruit of repentance. There's not the deeds of the flesh, there's the fruit of the Spirit. We say no to the deeds of the flesh and yes to the fruit of the Spirit. That's what happens at that moment of conversion, that we turn in repentance and we follow Christ, and it's what happens every day of our lives as Christians. The way that you came to Christ is the way that you walk and continue to follow Christ. It's saying no to the deeds of the flesh and yes to the fruit of the Spirit. That's how we walk. So maybe you've got trapped in saying, my life is all about things I'm not allowed to do. And you've forsaken the commands of what Jesus has called you to do and encourage you to obey, to follow him. But maybe you say, I'm just going to follow Jesus and not worry about sin. And sin has crept back into your life. There are some things that maybe you need to repent of, that you need to turn from. That's what following Jesus looks like. So, the marks of discipleship that we see are that he is 
He rises up. He leaves everything. And he follows Jesus. And one of the ways that he follows him is the fourth mark that we see is that he told everyone what Jesus had done. He told everyone what Jesus had done. The next scene after this scene is verse 29. And Levi made him, made Jesus, a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. So Levi has a party. Levi throws a party in honor of Jesus. And it's a party not only for Jesus, but also to introduce others to Jesus. This is what his response is. I have met Christ and now I want everyone else to know. And so Levi invites the only people he knows to invite. He invites all the other tax collectors, because that's who his friends are. The tax collectors and others. I don't know who these others are. In my mind, I think maybe the, the leper decided to tag along and the paralytic came because, hey, Jesus is there, so we're going to come too. And Levi says, sure, he's a well-to-do guy. He's got a big house with probably a big table with lots of food. And so there's a big banquet going on. This party is happening. And they come to his house and there's this, this party, this wonderful hospitality, and he introduces his friends to Jesus. As I think about that, think about this. Matthew invites them into his home. He invites them into his home. He doesn't say, why don't you guys come to church with me? He doesn't say, there's an evangelistic event. I think you should come to that. No, what's he do? He says, come to my house. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't invite people to church or to evangelistic events. But as a pattern, what is it? He says, come to my house. And when you come to my house, I'm going to have a great meal for you. I'm going to show you hospitality. And we're going to have a great time. And then when we sit down over coffee and dessert, I'm going to tell you about how Jesus has changed my life. I'm going to tell you about how why I can't go back to the tax booth anymore. Because Jesus has so radically changed me. And I want you to meet him. Let me introduce you to him. He's right here. Jesus, tell him what you did for me. Tell them to follow you. <laughs> this is how he, he invites them into his home. He has this conversation with friends. There's, there's a term people call Matthew parties. Uh, people have a Matthew party. And a Matthew party is, is, is often when someone first comes to Christ. That they say... What you need to do, now that you have all these friends who don't know Christ, is you need to have a party. And when people come, we have, we're going to have a meal, and then you're going to tell them about what Christ has done in your life. It's not a bait and switch. It's a friend telling friends that they have been changed completely. That's the other thing. Matthew not only invites them into his home, but Matthew has friends who don't know Jesus. Matthew has friends that don't know Jesus. Much of this, I think the thing for us is that when we come to Christ, very often, we lose all our non-Christian friends. Sometimes this is a cost of discipleship. Sometimes to follow Christ, we need to forsake certain relationships. But sometimes we just decide to get into a bubble. And we say, well, I'm only going to be around Christians and people that think about me. I'm only going to be around those that have the same moral standards that I do, that do what I do. And so for a lot of us, it's, it's hard to say that we have non-Christian friends. But I think that happens very often. And I'll be the first to raise my hand and then say that it happens with me. It's really hard to have non-Christian friends when you're a pastor. <laughs> no one wants to hang out with the pastor when you know, no one invites the pastor to their house for the party. Typically, I talked with a pastor friend here in town um, in Louisville, and we were thinking he was thinking through this idea, just convicted about having friends who don't know Jesus. Do we have friends that don't know Christ? Do you have people that? And I'm not just saying acquaintances and coworkers, but but friends. Who's a friend? That was one of the questions that he and I talked about. And he said, a friend is someone who will come to your house for a party more than once 
and who will invite you to come to their house. Do you have a friend who is not a Christian like that? Someone that, that you care for one another, you, you have an interest in them. They're, they're not a project. They're not someone that you're just trying, yes, you're concerned for their soul, but that's not all that they are to you. They're a friend, you care for them. The other way I know someone is my friend is if I'll help them move. Man, I know who my friends are. If you, if, if, if I'm moving, they're the ones that show up and carry my furniture for me. <laughs> There's different things like that. Who are your friends? Who are the people that, that you hang out with? that you love, and maybe some of them would be non-Christians that you can build relationships with, that you can invite into your home and say, let me tell you about how Jesus changed me. And then you continue to do that, to genuinely love them, to introduce them to Christ. Well, in the midst of this beautiful scene, we have the ultimate party poopers show up, and it's the Pharisees. It says there, verse 30, and the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples. They show up, they have an issue with the crowd that Jesus is hanging out with. They don't like who he is, who he's with. And so they go to Jesus, right? No, they don't go to Jesus. Who do they go to? They grumble at his disciples. So they go to the disciples and they say, we don't like who you're hanging out with. Why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? Why is your master hanging out with all these rejects of society, with these unclean, unimportant people, with those who break, if not God's law, at least they're breaking our pharisaical law, and they are unclean according to us. Why are you eating with them? Now they pose the question to the disciples, but who gives the answer? (laughs) Jesus steps in, and they get the answer from the man himself. And Jesus begins by giving them an illustration. He answers them, he says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. The point, the well don't go to a doctor, the sick do. Imagine going to the doctor this week, fill out all the paperwork, spend 45 minutes reading five-year-old issues of Newsweek, and you go into another room and you sit for 30 more minutes, and they come and they measure and weigh you like a Thanksgiving turkey, and you sit there for a little while longer, and then the doctor comes in, and he says, what seems to be the trouble? And you say, nothing, I feel great. <laughs> the doctor says, then why are you here? Well, I just thought I'd come and say hi. You know, <laughs> People don't do that. Who goes to the doctor? People that are sick. Now, if you are sick, if you're sick, you can't get to the doctor fast enough, right? Sick people do whatever it takes to get to the doctor. Why? Because they know they have a need. They know something is wrong, and they have confidence that the doctor might be able to help them. And Jesus say, it says, I came to help the sick. I came to help people who know they need help. So people people don't go to the doctor. Well, people don't go to the doctor. Sick people go to the doctor. But what if you're sick and you deny the fact that you're sick? What if all the symptoms are there, but you refuse to go to the doctor? That happens, doesn't it? I listened to a, on the radio this week. I heard a, a story about hearing aids. And they said more than 30 million Americans experience significant hearing loss, but only a third of them get hearing aids. Now, they said that part of the issue is cost, like $1,500 a year. So it's expensive. But the other reason, they said, because in areas where it's covered by insurance, people still don't get them. It's got the same rate. And this is what one of the audiologists said. People genuinely perceive hearing loss as being associated with older age. So any excuse not to get them is a good one if it's something you really don't want. 
so people can't hear, but they don't want to get hearing aids because to get a hearing aid is to admit that they can't hear, and to admit that they can't hear is to say, I'm getting old. <laughs> and people don't want to say that. So think about this. Jesus says, I came to call sinners, not righteous people. What he was not saying is that there's two categories of people. There's sinners and there's righteous people. But what he is saying is that there are those who are sinners and know that they are sinners. And there are those who are sinners and think that they are righteous. Or they know that they're sinners, but they don't want to admit it. They're not going to admit it because to admit that they're sinners is to admit that they have need and no one wants to do that. So Jesus says, of these two groups, I came for the sinners. The sinners who know that they're sinners and are willing to admit it. And hasn't Jesus proved that? I mean, Jesus shows that this is truly who he came for. He shows up and he goes to the stinky, smelly fisherman. He goes to the leper. He goes to the paralytic. He goes to the tax collectors. He spends the majority of his time with sick and demon-possessed people. That's who he came for. And the religious people who think that they are pleasing to God because of all their external righteousness, they say, Jesus, if you're really from God, then you're going to hang out with us. Not these sinners. You're defiling yourself. You're making yourself unclean. You know, I think that's at the core of our sinful nature. This, this desire to compare ourselves to others. This desire to see the faults of other people so that we can think about how great we are. Isn't that how, I know I've been convicted of that this week as I walk through life. What I so often do is I, I walk through stores or scroll through Facebook with a prideful eye and I just want to say, well, I'm better than that person. We gossip at work or we mock people that are despised in society so that we can convince ourselves that we're better than we really are. And having now exalted ourselves, it makes it really hard to be humbled. To be humbled by the fact that God has chosen us, that God has made us his children, that he has opened our eyes and delivered us from sin. Let me read to you just a, a really well-worded statement on this from Brennan Manning in the Ragamuffin Gospel. He says, We should be astonished at the goodness of God, stunned that he should bother to call us by name, our mouths wide open at his love, bewildered that at this very moment we are standing on holy ground. He goes on, Every parable of mercy in the gospel was addressed by Jesus to his opponents, murmuring, murmuring scribes, grumbling Pharisees, that's here, critical theologians, members of the Sanhedrin, they are enemies of the gospel of grace, indignant because Jesus asserts that God cares about sinners, incensed that he should eat with people they despised. What does he tell them? What does Jesus say to them? Jesus says this, These sinners, these people you despise are nearer to God than you. It is not the hookers and thieves who find it most difficult to repent. It is you who are so secure in your piety and pretense that you have no need of conversion. They may have disobeyed God's call. Their professions have debased them, but they have shown sorrow and repentance. But more than any of that, these are the people who appreciate his goodness. They are parading into the kingdom before you, for they have what you lack, a deep gratitude for God's love and deep wonder at his mercy. I think we're all prone to that trap, aren't we? 
the trap of the Pharisees to just exalt ourselves. We start to think, wow, I'm sure God's so glad that he chose me. I mean, he really got someone good when he picked me. And he's certainly not going to pick these other people because they're not up to snuff like I am. In reality, though, if we have been invited to the table to feast with Jesus, it's not because we are righteous. It's the exact opposite. It's We come because of our sin. We come because we are stinky fishermen. We come because we are rotting lepers, because we are helpless paralytics, and because we are sinful, despised tax collectors. That's who we are. That's how you get to the table. And while all the religious people think that they are righteous, and they sit and they, they pass judgment, what we should be doing is we should be rejoicing that God has opened our eyes to see sin, that he has caused us to smell our own stench, that he has given us the strength to come to him in repentance, to leave everything and follow him. If you are at the table, it's because you're a sinner, not because you're righteous. Now then, flowing from that, flowing from that gratitude, if we if we lump ourselves in, even as Paul did, right? He says, I am the... I'm the chief of sinners. I am the worst of sinners. If that's how we understand ourselves, if we rightly see Jesus came to save sinners, I'm a smelly fisherman, I'm a rotting leper, I'm a helpless paralytic, and I'm a despised tax collector. That's who I am. Then what's that going to do as we interact with other people? And this is another place I've been so convicted of. If if we were despised, and we were in desperate need, and we have been raised up, and we've been given undeserved grace, and we've been called children of God through God's grace poured out on the cross, then we should never, we should never look down on someone as undeserving of that grace. If we understand that that's who we are, who we were apart from Christ, then why would we ever look down on someone and say they're not worthy of His grace? We should we should invite all, our, our church doors... Our church doors should be wide open to anyone, but they should be open especially, especially to the poor, to the needy, and to the vile. I mean the sinners. Our doors should especially be open to addicts and alcoholics. Our doors should be open to the beaten and to the broken. It should be open to the strung out, to the strangers, to the immoral, to the illegals, to the homeless, to the helpless. Because it's people that are drowning and know that they are drowning that come to Jesus. It's not the righteous, meaning the people that think they're righteous. It's the people that know they are broken. They are the ones that come to Christ. And our doors should be open to all who would come. And our doors are open to middle class tax collectors and recovering Pharisees and rich and wealthy. They're open to them if they will come and say, I'm a sinner. And I'll rub shoulders with anyone else that comes in this place because I recognize I'm not righteous, but I am a sinner. They are welcome to come too. I pray that God, that God would fill our church with people who see their need of a Savior because that's what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who comes and says, I'm needy. I pray that GFC would be a place that's filled with lost sheep who have been found by the shepherd because if you're a Christian, that's who you were. You were lost. You were dead. If we don't come to our knees when Jesus invites us to his table, then then he won't have us. 
Did you hear those strong words from Luke 14? Jesus invites people to come and they give him all the excuses in the world. In part what they're saying is, we don't really want to come. We don't really need to come. We're righteous. So what does Jesus do? He sends a servant out and he says, go to the highways and the hedges. Go find anyone and everyone that you can. Find the cripple and the lame and the poor and the needy and bring them in because they'll be happy when they show up. They'll come and they'll feast at the banquet and they will be thankful that I have given them this banquet. And I'll fill my house with those that recognize their need. Because Jesus didn't come to call those who think that they are righteous. He came to call sinners to repentance. I pray that God would make us like Matthew. I pray that we would follow him in that same way, that we would, that we would leave everything. That we count everything as lost to follow Christ. And by the power of His Spirit, we would walk in His ways, but also that we would invite those who everyone else despises to come and have the party at our house. And that we would celebrate with them the wonderful, life-transforming grace of Jesus and proclaim that He He is able and willing to cleanse anyone and everyone. That He has the authority to forgive the sins of even the worst sinner that no one else wants to forgive, Jesus will forgive them. Because He came not to call the righteous. That's not why He came. He didn't come to call us because we're good. He came to save us because we're dead. Sinners. And if that's the reason that Jesus came to earth, and that's that's what's so striking about that, isn't it? He says very clearly why He came. Do you want to know why Jesus came? I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners to repentance. That's why I came. And if we're saying that we follow Jesus, then we need to be about his business. We need to do what he says he came to do. Call sinners to repentance. I don't know exactly what this looks like, and I've told you that I've been convicted about this. I think we need to pray. If you don't have any friends that are not Christians, pray that God would give you one. Open the day and say, God, I pray you'd send me someone that really knows they're a sinner. Send me someone who's really lost, that would come across my path, that I can say, hey, you've been rejected by everyone else, and you think that you're so far gone that nothing can save you. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me introduce you to my friend Jesus, and let me be a friend to you. That's the place. I don't know where else to start except to pray, God, send me sinners. (laughs) Send me sinners that I, I can tell them that there is hope in you. I pray that we would do that, and I pray as we gather tonight to pray that that would be the cry of our hearts. God, send people through our doors, through your sovereign goodwill, that just walk in and are hopeless and helpless and lost, and that we would be able to tell them that Jesus is able and willing. Jesus has authority to forgive. Jesus came specifically for you. Now, I think it's wonderful that we get to take the Lord's Supper this morning. Think about all the people that were gathered around Matthew's table. Tax collectors, sinners, people that were despised. That was kind of the requirement to be a part of Matthew's party. You had to be someone that no one else wanted there. And that's the requirement for coming to this table. Is that you have said, I'm a sinner. Jesus didn't come to call righteous. And so if you sit and you say, well, I'm pretty righteous. That's why I'm going to take communion. Then please don't. Because Jesus came 
to give this meal, to give his body and his blood for people who are sinners who need to be cleansed from their sin. The bread represents that Jesus is our life, that he has been broken for us, that he's been broken to give us new life, that on the cross his body was beaten and bruised and he died so that we would not have to. He died for our sin, that his blood was poured out so that it would wash away our sin. That we don't come to this table with any righteousness. We come on our knees saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I have no hope apart from you. And so if you come to the table this morning and you say, Jesus is my only hope. Jesus is my bread. Jesus is my drink. Jesus is all that I have. Then you are invited to come and to remind yourself. And as we remind one another that Jesus is our life. He is our hope.